Gimme Shelter is supported by the James Irvine Foundation, committed to a California where all low-income workers have the power to advance economically. People have some <laughs> some idea that like building affordable housing has like some basis in reality. Okay, it doesn't. Like anytime I speak to people about this, I go, okay, take everything that you know about real estate, anything you've ever learned, anything you really know, and now throw it out the window. Welcome to Gimme Shelter, the California Housing Crisis Podcast. I'm Matt Levin, dad and housing reporter with Cal Matters. And I'm Liam Dillon with the Los Angeles Times. And today, Friday, April 10th, why does a low-income housing unit cost $1.1 million to build? Yikes. It sounds like a lot. It sure is. It makes it hard. When you got a housing crisis, it makes it hard to fix. Liam, why don't you tell us about the story that you just dropped? Uh, what is it? Yesterday? Yesterday. Yeah, so um, I've been working for quite some time on a project to get a better understanding of why it costs so much to build affordable housing, specifically low-income housing in California. Uh, There was a study that came out of the federal government uh, fall of 2018, uh, intriguing, that showed that it was more expensive to build in California than anywhere else, and we wanted to try to get a better sense of why that is. And as I alluded to already, huge impediment when the state has a shortage of available homes, especially for low-income residents, to remedying that is that it's really expensive to to build new housing. Um, And we have the perfect guest to talk about that with. That is Ginger Hitsky. She's the developer of the uh, erstwhile Pearl Project in the city of Solana Beach in San Diego. Great where, use of uh, erstwhile. Where the project is, uh, uh, that's what costs uh, $1.1 million per unit. We are going to table um, the most popular segment in all of California housing podcastery um, until the second half of the Matt and Liam section of the podcast because it dovetails so well with um, your story. Um, First, we want to talk about an issue that we've both written about pretty extensively in the wake of the pandemic, uh, which is evictions and the uh, patchwork of eviction moratoriums and rules and protections that have popped up around the state, mostly in the absence of some type of uh, cohesive statewide policy. Tell us about the Judicial Council. Well, what? Who are the judicial right. council? I always like, go ahead. I wonder. I wonder if you're going to picture if you picture the same thing that I picture, which is basically like whatever the Freemasons look like in the 1850s in some torchlit room. Yeah. No, I, not I, so I, much. I, was, I, I don't know. Judicial council sounds like they're like the rival of the Justice League. So. Oh, like, okay. Like, like Wonder Woman, perhaps, or like so her off-brand knockoff, or I don't know, um, perhaps them. Um, but, you know, I, I mean, I, another council, I usually, city councils are usually enough, but the, now there's another one, the judicial council, and this is like the, the body that uh, sort of governs the court systems in the state. That's right. right. It's, a, it's a big group of judges um, presided over by the state Supreme Court chief justice. So they make rules for how the courts operate. Um, yes. And, and obviously, you know, to do an eviction, you have to go to court uh, to get seat all the way through. And now pretty much you're, that can't happen anymore. Pretty much, yeah, which is, a, which is a departure mostly from what was happening before in, in certain counties around the state. So basically, just to, just to summarize what they did and, and the, I guess the, the, what exists statewide is that right now, um, even if your landlord tries to evict you, that case could not go through the courts. Um, you could not be served with a lawsuit. Um, and except, you know, in, in public health emergencies, that's still allowed. But in almost all case cases, these court, these eviction cases will not go through the court process for three months after the statewide uh, emergency related to the coronavirus ends. So, so let's let's do the FAQ, which I think will hit on some of the elements of the Judicial Council's decision that we didn't touch on, and then some of the actual um, realities we've been seeing play out on the ground. Yeah, I'll start. I'll ask the first question to you. Yeah. So are people still being locked out of their apartments right now? So short answer, maybe. There is nothing in the Judicial Council decision that would prohibit a sheriff's department carrying out what's called a writ. So literally coming to your door and forcing you out of of your apartment and locking it behind you. Um, if that had already gone through the court system and was in kind of the backlog of the local sheriff's department, 
nothing in the Judicial Council touches that. So if you didn't pay your March 1st rent uh, and you were being evicted because of that, even with a lot of the local eviction protections that were put in place after the pandemic, and definitely even after some of Newsom's executive orders, the Sheriff Department could still come and lock you out. Basically, the last week and a half of March, the Fresno Sheriff's Department, they, they performed 20 eviction lockouts, many of which came after Newsom's shelter in order place, or uh, sorry, shelter in place order. The Riverside Sheriff's Department, to my knowledge, um, still has a policy that they are going through their eviction backlog. And I am still getting emails from people in Riverside saying, hey, I'm due to be locked out or I know someone who was locked out within the last couple of days. Some sheriff's departments have just said after Newsom issued the shelter in place order March 19th, we're not going to do this. We're just we know, you know, they're they're in our backlog, but we're just not going to do this because we don't want to you know, possibly contribute to um, a public health crisis this way. The sheriff departments that did choose to continue to perform lockouts, most of them have gone through their backlog. Are people right now being locked out? If so, it's probably a very small number. But over the last couple weeks, that practice has continued in, in wide swaths of the state. Fresno County has a ton of people. So does Riverside County. Uh, second FAQ, do you have to pay your rent? Uh, yeah. Um you know, that's the short answer. Yes. There's no policy that's been passed at the local level, state level or federal level that, again, to my knowledge, um, forgives anybody's rent payments. So, uh, yes, you have to pay your rent. And if you don't pay your rent now, you're going to have to pay your rent later. Uh, what uh, under these policies, what this uh, the policies that have passed have done is essentially say if you if you don't pay your rent now that means um you have a lot of protections against being evicted uh right now certainly as mm-hmm. we've already discussed and also even going forward um particularly in the city of los angeles for instance you have one year after uh the state of emergency ends to repay any back due rent where would you put the city of la in in terms of that level of flexibility for tenants compared to other other cities in the state among the strongest, I yeah. think Oakland's is Oakland's is pretty strong. San Francisco's as well, uh, but LA certainly certainly at or, at or near the top of the list in terms of, as you said, uh, uh, let's just say generosity yes. for uh, for tenants. Yes. So you just to sum up, you would still owe, but if you're in certain parts of the state, you may have longer to pay it back. That's right. Okay. Why don't you ask me the next one? Because this yeah. one is tight and I think important. So. Can a landlord still slap an eviction notice on your uh, on your door? Yes, legally they can. A three day or quit notice, which is kind of the first document that uh, launches the eviction process, can be put on your door if you did not pay your rent on time or actually if you're breaking other conditions of the lease too. Right. What the Judicial Council's decision did and what some of these local moratoriums that were in place before it um, did was basically suspend the eviction process, everything that comes after that three day or quit notice. So right. even though it says three days or quit, if you, you don't have to quit. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's basically the take home. If you choose to fight it in the courts, it's a much longer runway right. um, that, that is supposed to extend beyond when the state of emergency is lifted. Now, yeah. th- what I will say is, you know, despite our, um, as you so frequently reference, vast and influential audience, there's going to be a lot of tenants that don't know this. And once you see a three-day or quit notice on your door, there, there is a risk, and tenants groups have brought this up, that you'll say, well, I guess I got to go. You know, yeah. there's no recourse yeah. for me. My landlord wants right. me out. Time to move. And so that's that's something that um, renters rights groups are very aware of and trying to communicate to their renters that even though it says a three day or quit notice, that doesn't mean you have to move out in the middle of a pandemic right now. And this also speaks, I think, to I mean, I've been hearing a lot and writing a lot about the specific situation in Los Angeles, which, as I noted, is among the stronger protections around the state. But there's a lot of I mean, it, whether it's I'm sure there's it's confusion or there may be some malice or there may be something 
uh, where you just get all these sorts of notes from l- l- landlords to, to tenants about yeah. saying things that are, you know, could be kind of scary or, or kind of, you know, I mean, there was one uh, case I wrote about where you had a landlord requiring for a payment plan uh, that that tenant to turn over their stimulus check right to them. Um, and that's not required or allowed under any of these rules that that's we're talking right. about. But be- because these situations are super bureaucratic, uh, hard to understand, some require you to go to court to defend yourself. Um, it's really, really difficult to know what is what you as a tenant are allowed to do um, and, and what you're not. Um, and I think the same goes for landlords, too. Let us let us not forget that landlords have bills, whether they're mortgages, yes. whether they're uh, maintenance, whether they're uh, you know paying the property managers, all these sorts of things that are huge, huge bills that don't go away. Right. Um, and, you know, in that situation, you could certainly understand and see how much hurt um, landlords are going to be without without uh, without them getting the rents. Um, and it's just the patchwork is really, really, really um, difficult, I think, for anyone in even, you know, I've t- talked to lawyers who are confused. Right. And yes. so it's just it's just a really hard scenario for anyone to understand uh, kind of ex- exactly what's going on. I think the worst, if you, you forgive me for kind of keep going on, no, is God. what the what the federal government, did, what the federal government did, uh, you know, in the stimulus plan, they passed a nationwide eviction moratorium. Mm-hmm. But there was a catch. Right. And that catch was it only applies to uh, properties whose landlords, whose owners have federally backed mortgages. Yes. Right? So I've been a tenant uh, 15 years. Uh, you know, I have never known what kind of mortgage my landlord has. It's just an absurd thing to, to expect a tenant to know that for a landlord and a landlord, even in some cases to know who owns their mortgage um, and, and then to abide by these by these rules. And so it's just, you know, on on paper, it seems like something. But on the other in the other hand, it's almost more confusing than it might actually be worth. Yes, um, th- there was a Urban Institute analysis that actually put I was surprised that the, the yeah. number of rental properties um, that were that did have some type of federally backed mortgage on them was about 25% of rental properties, which on the one hand, that's a lot. I mean, that was far more than I expected because I tend to think of, um, you know, Fannie Mae and Freddie operating more in the single family home space, right? Right. Um, So that's a lot. On the other hand, 75% of properties would be left out of that. No, I think it's fair to say that for landlords and particularly for homeowners, uh, yes. At least from a pure financial situation, they've been uh, granted more benefit than 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 renters have. Yes, which which again, not to minimize the financial hit that landlords are going to take if people aren't able to afford their rent. There will be people right. who have to declare bankruptcy or get foreclosed on because of that, you know, inevitability. Okay, I, let let's do the last FAQ, the last question in the FAQ, which I think is the most important. Yeah. What happens after the eviction moratorium ends? It's like this cliff that you're staring at, right? You're watching it and you're looking at it. And the interviews that I'm doing, I'm talking with a bunch of tenants in L.A. now. And, you know, people are not paying all of their rent or they're not paying half their rent. Yeah. And then they're worried about May. And then we might all of a sudden get into June. Yeah. And, you know, say your rent's two thousand dollars. All of a sudden, all of a sudden you, you're staring, you know, June 1st, you could maybe get your job back, but you're now staring at a $6,000 debt that you owe your landlord. Even if you have a year, you know, already if you're paying 30% of your income on your rent or rent on 50% of your income on your rent, even if you get your job back June 1st, the idea of paying off $6,000 over a year is not an easy pill to swallow. No. And, and not only that, and I, I don't think this has been clear enough in the communication around the Judicial Council's decision. Yeah. The pandemic and being laid off because of the pandemic is not a legal defense against an eviction. So if Ultimately, you, right. Yeah. yeah so yeah. if you yeah. miss your April rent payment, your May rent payment, your June rent payment, and the, your landlord decides, you know what, I want you out of here, the landlord has right. to wait. They have to wait until the emergency moratorium is lifted. But once it's lifted, you don't have much of a legal case 
to protect yourself against the eviction. You're, you'll depending, lose. Depending on where you live, but yes. Yes, that's true. Yeah. Dep- yes, right. that's true. So that's actually good. But offer- in many cases, yes. But in many cases, you're exactly right. And now, finally, uh, for the most popular segment in all of California housing podcastery, it is the avocado of the fortnight. Our look at the most absurd California housing story of the past two weeks, and this avocado, dare I say, it is reminiscent of a Steinbeck novella. That's probably my least favorite of everything that he's written. Uh, what am I referring to, Liam? Uh, the Pearl. Is that a Steinbeck novella? Was it called The Pearl? Yeah, it was called The Pearl, man. Okay. Huh. Yeah. You're much more of a Steinbeck aficionado. Although I I did order East of Eden. It's, it's in the of, mail. Of course you yeah. did. Yeah, of yeah. course you did. Yeah. yeah. Um, yeah. Was, was that in the Reese Witherspoon Book Club recommendations? Or, <laughs> or was that Goop? I forget. It's either Goop or Reese Witherspoon. Uh, also, you know, native Californian. I read Steinbeck. As your birthright, yeah. Yeah, so, yeah as right. opposed to, you know, uh, PDFs of Stephen A. Smith. Yeah, I mean, there's a number associated with this avocado as well. Yeah, so um, this is the most expensive affordable housing projects that we, we found in the state um, and likely the entire country. Uh, $1.1 million per apartment. And in fact, when I was trying to fact check the line that said, hey, this is the most expensive in the country, I called New York, I called Chicago, I called D.C., and they laughed at me. It's called The Pearl. It's in a city of Solana, city of Solana Beach. Uh, and to be clear, this, this project uh, has not been built. And in fact, it looks like it's not going to be built. Um, no. But it did get, uh, it has, was approved by its city council. It did get state funding at one point. Um, and so it was absolutely a viable project that, uh, you know, almost got, almost got done here. Um, but it would have provided uh, 10 uh, apartments um, in Solana Beach, which is uh, uh, you know median income over a hundred thousand, small community, thirteen thousand population, um, you know on a, on a on a property, a public parking lot, what it is right now, very close to the coast, um, and there are a number of reasons why this project ended up being uh, as expensive as it was, and what was interesting is a lot of the same reasons that this project. Uh, that, that, that the cost drivers in this project were very similar to what we found when we did an analysis of what the cost drivers were across the state. Um, so projects that are small, 10 units is very small. And when you have small projects, they don't get the economy of scale that you would need to, um, to make projects less expensive per unit, right? Um, so that's one big reason. Another yeah, is- and Yeah, I, well, let me, let me broaden this out to say why this is so important for the state. Yeah. Because people made a big deal of 500 million in um, low-income housing tax credits that Newsom put into last year's budget. If a good amount of affordable housing units are costing a million dollars a unit, Liam, how, how many units is that? Uh, not that many. You're making me do math. I'm in. A, I'm in a dark closet. This is hard to do. Uh, okay, so it's but, 500 yeah. units, right? Yeah. Now, not every yeah. unit in the state, affordable housing unit in the state, it costs 1.1 million. As we said, this is most expensive. But statewide, right. they are, especially in the places where the biggest affordability problems are, they yeah. do run you a lot. So it means every well, state. But, but yeah, 500, 500,000 was the average. Yes, and so that's then right. you double your number, and that's it. That's the only. That's the only amount of housing you get. That's right. And meanwhile, it's yeah. a housing need of 1.3 million, which is probably an underestimate anyway. I, I want to do this. I want to go factor by factor. What yeah. was driving up that 1.1 million? You talked about the fact that it couldn't be as dense as the developer wanted it to be. Yeah. Right. What comes next? Uh, the parking. Let's talk about the parking. Why did it have to have parking? So this was a project that for 10 apartments had a 53 space underground parking garage, which is a, an, again, you're making me do math, but a five, essentially five parking spots are uh, for every, uh, for every house, right? Yes. Um, so why, and, you know, what, why did there have to be five parking spots for every house? Yeah, so this was replacing a public parking lot um, that the the uh, city uh, wanted to make sure that that parking was replaced. And then once you add the um, once you add the parking for residents, that's how you got the numbers that you are. Now, there's some potential that might be a little bit more complicated. There are some potential legal restrictions on the deed of the property. This is the subject of a lawsuit, potential issues when it comes to the Coastal Commission. But the a lot of parking, especially for the number of, uh, of apartments that were going to be built. Okay. 
So there was the parking, there was the fact that you couldn't build um, as many units as you would want to, and that inherently increases your per unit cost. What are the other uh, major factors driving up that, that add up to that 1.1 million? So it's tough exactly to talk about connecting a dollar amount to community opposition. Yeah. Um, but there was a lot of it, and it, all, and it absolutely increased the cost of this project. So the, uh, one very concrete way, the original idea was for the developer to build uh, 18 apartments instead of 10, right? And in negotiating with the city, uh, the city said, nah, I don't know if that's going to work. You know, you need to do 10. Right. Um, 18 is too much or you would have to have too tall of a building in order to be able to do that. Right. And so that was one concrete way. If you cut the project in half, it's going to be much more expensive per 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 apartment. And that many few people are going to be able to live there. You know, also, this project took four years to get approved. Yeah. During that time, you know, we have a quote in the story um, from a resident. And this is very representative of what residents said throughout this process. You know, quote, Low-income people tend to own cars that are in disrepair and ride motorcycles adding to the noise of a lights-out 8 p.m. community, right? And this is from a person who lived across the street in a condominium. Um, That was very representative of the kinds of comments that came out through this entire process. So public opposition took four years for the project to get approved. Once that that happened, there was a, a lawsuit from that condo association that, you know, worked out in the developer's favor, but took two and a half years to get resolved, right? Um, and then after that, she, the developer- Remind yeah. me, Liam, it was not a CEQA lawsuit? So CEQA was an element of the case. The okay. California Environmental Quality Act was an element of the case in this, in this lawsuit. But the, the main sort of cause of action was a dispute over whether this parking lot had to, under its deed, remain only a parking lot or not. Okay, okay. All right, sorry, continue. So once now, so again, the developer Ginger, who we talked to later, proposed this project for the first time in 2009, right? Um, the project gets approved in 2014. Uh, then uh, two and a half years later, uh, she clears these lawsuits that, 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 uh, that she faced. And now um, a huge problem was during that time, construction costs went up a significant, significant amount. Yeah. And so ultimately what ended up sinking sinking the project is after that delay the cost of labor cost of materials and again this was a project that where she had to the developer she had to pay um union level wages for the construction workers that were on this um uh you know going to be building it um that that ended up being too much of a cost sort of for her to bear not not the prevailing wage the union level wages by itself but just simply the increases in construction costs that she faced uh, once she was held up by the city and held up in litigation. Um, and so what's the current state of the project? So it's basically on its deathbed. Um, it's uh, She's negotiating now with the city for how to get out of the agreement. She did get some funding from the state in 2018, but the state's now pulling it because she hasn't broken ground. And is um, the city planning on still trying to put an affordable housing complex there? Well, I don't know. I think it's sort of too early to tell okay. uh, in, in one sense. But I think in another sense, you know, this is something that we, we haven't gotten into yet. I mean, they're legally required to do it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think when we spend time talking about, oh, my gosh, this is so expensive and, uh, you know, what a you know waste for taxpayers or whatever, or what a, you know, huge process. And it's like a huge mess. We forget who really gets hurt by this. And that are the people who you don't have a place to to live um in this case you know this project was was um was an effort to resolve a legal settlement from the you know early 1990s where the city agreed to tear down an old motel property and replace um uh that with some new affordable housing that the folks who were living in that old motel could move into by 1999 so for 20 years, and I spoke with a gentleman, Miguel Zamora, a dishwasher, construction worker, um, who lived in the in the old property in, in in the old motel in the 90s, was promised a new home in this legal settlement uh, 20 years ago, and he's still waiting. And now it looks like, given that the project is meeting its demise, he's um, he's still going to have to wait even more. He's on a housing voucher, right? He is indeed. It's a trickle down effect, um, right? He. 
he now has been using that housing voucher. That means in a limited supply of housing vouchers, because the Pearl was not built, somebody else is not getting that housing voucher, right? Which means they are right. paying either a huge chunk of their income um, towards rent, they're living in an overcrowded place, um, or they might be homeless. Well, I think like, I think it, it, it you know, this obviously was an outlier in the sense that we did not find another project that is over a million dollars. Um, but we didn't focus on it as an outlier. It wasn't so much of an outlier that it was uh, that the, it's not recognizable around the rest of the state. You know, we found six other projects that are over nine hundred thousand um, dollars an apartment, including three that are just opened in the past year. And so this is a, a, a large and growing problem where you're seeing numbers for the cost to build being really at a level that is going to be very hard, very hard to imagine that the state will be able to, you know, build its way out of its low income housing problem because of this, of this, of this expense. So how do we fix this? Yeah. So, um, you know, I, I think it, the issues that we identified, right? I mean, you have bigger projects with less parking, right? Is one way to bring the cost down. Um, you, uh, you, you find ways to perhaps approve projects more quickly um, and address some of, you know, perhaps way neighborhood concerns that are there with some of the housing needs. Um, you know, another issue that we, you know, you, and it's again, people have different priorities. Mm -hmm. We did find that there was a big uh, effect for projects where construction workers were paying, were getting paid union level wages. You can address that or you can decide that that's a, 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 a thing that we as a state want to do. Right. Mm -hmm. um, similarly, some of the environmental um, uh, restrictions, um, you know, uh, uh, this project in, San, in, in Solana Beach uh, needed to be lead certified as part of its approval. Right. There are a number of requirements um, or, or incentives that low income developers have to build to environmental standards that exceed even what luxury condominiums have to do. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, and again, you could see rationale for um, uh, you know, union level wages for construction workers. You can see rationale for highly efficient, energy efficient projects, but all those things sort of have a cost. And so weighing those things, I think, is is another um, another thing that 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 makes sense for policymakers to do. And then kind of the last thing is, you know, I haven't touched on this yet. The process by which uh, low income developers get funding in the state is a real, real, real mess. And it's a mess in terms of bureaucracy. You know, we even pointed out that um, you know, in the treasurer's office, which handles some of this funding for low income development, things got so bad that there was literal stacks of paper piling up because the people didn't know uh, uh, there wasn't enough people to process it. Right. Um, so that's just a huge bureaucratic. Yeah. Mess. But al but also these things cause actually cause cost increases. Uh, you know, we found that there was a, a huge increase or, or an additive increase um, every time a developer had to search for another financing tool because they all are in regulations to get it. And in fact, um, uh, you know, some of these administrative costs, uh, a study even found that it's more expensive than developers are paying for land. So there's a lot of cost savings potentially to be had in sort of reducing some of these bureaucratic requirements that are there to get funding. Do you think the conclusions of your story have changed at all um, now that we're in an environment where the housing market is going to look a lot different, it seems like, than it did when you were writing it? Yeah, I don't... And I don't, I've tried to investigate my own biases on this because obviously you want to, your thing that you're working on for a year to still be meaningful. Right? Yeah. Um, but at the same time, I mean, I think like it was a point made by a UC Berkeley Turner Center researcher, Carolina Reed, um, in the story, which is that like, look, um, these are problems that are exist, you know, kind of absent um, any sort of shock to the system, right? If it's hard to get money from the state, um, it's going to be just as hard. The bureaucracy is still there, mm -hmm. you know. And in some ways, you could argue it might even be harder if the, if this uh, loss of tax revenues leads to less government employees that could process process you know paper or process projects through the system, right? Um, you know, yeah, you might see some decreases in land costs, which may or construction costs, which may may make it somewhat cheaper for that reason. But you're, on the other side of that, you're going to have a significantly greater need for low-income housing, yes. right? All the more putting the pressure on trying to get kind of um, 
got lower cost to produce produce more of it. So, you know, I think kind of the fundamentals here are, you know, again, despite my bias on this, I think, uh, you know, in, in many ways as important as they were before this before this health crisis. I, I think I agree with most of that. I, I do think what is primary in all of this is the public funding. And so yeah. if you don't have that, right? So so in even in a world where let's say the process, the regulatory approval process is incredibly streamlined, both for acquiring the funding and through getting it through local government. Even right. in a world where um, land costs get cheaper and construction costs, labor and materials get cheaper, right? Which that could be one of the consequences. Um, yeah. If you don't have the public financing up front, the project does not get built, period. So, yep. and if we learned anything from the Great Recession when it comes to affordable housing financing, that is one of the pools of money that dried up here in California very, very quickly. Yeah, I think that's right. And again, you know, um, if you're a local government right now and you do happen to have some, or even the state, do happen to have some housing funding, you know, if you have a choice between funneling that into um, building new construction, low-income construction, or immediately offering rental assistance to keep people in their homes right now, that's where that money's going to go, you know? And, you know, already, so every pot of money is being tested, right, at every level of government. And even the housing pot of money is being squeezed by the fact that, um, you know, kind of emergency rental assistance is, go is going almost in all cases to come first before um, building more houses. That's right. Um, okay, let's talk with the person that actually tried to build the pearl. Yes, let's talk to Ginger. We are here with Ginger Hitsky, the president of uh, Hitsky Development Corporation. Ginger, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you for asking me to be on. So tell us a little bit of, first about your company. You're based in San Diego? Yes, my office is in Lemon Grove in San okay. Diego County. So what kind of uh, housing development do you do? Hyper-specific, so I build high-density rental housing on infill sites for low-income households. And is there a lot of that availability in San Diego? or? <laughs> <laughs> I don't think there's enough of it anywhere. So when you say low-income, give me an idea of the average income of some of your tenants. I would say about thirty-five dollars to $40,000 per household on average. That's not going to get you very far, obviously, in San Diego. No. You and I have actually had many conversations over the past year because I wrote a lot about your project in a uh, proposed project, let's say, in the city of Solana Beach, uh, which is a mm -hmm. northern San Diego, you know, wealthy beach community uh, where you've been trying to build a project called the Pearl since 2009. Is that right? Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. And that project now has the distinction of potentially being or well, is the most expensive affordable housing project per unit in the state and probably the country. It's uh, 10 units at $1.1 million per apartment. Did you ever? Congratulations. Yes. How does it feel to, to hear that? You know how that feels when you first called me and I told you, I was like, this is my nightmare phone call. Um, yeah. <laughs> and I do want to, I do want to make a note. This is, yeah. it doesn't exist. It's just $1.1 yeah. million on paper. Yeah. So what happened? Where do you want me to begin? Well, why don't you talk about why the city reached out and asked developers, Hey, you know, we have a piece of land. It's a parking lot. We want to put some affordable housing there. We actually have this legal settlement where we have to put affordable housing there. You were, you know, responded to that. And, and what were you thinking when you first sort of saw that that offer and why Solana Beach would be an attractive place to try to build? Okay, so I got a little, um, like, a news clipping, like a news article clipping. It was a little blurb from a friend of mine. And, and to me, it seemed like a good opportunity because it was a small city. And I thought it was really interesting that the city was saying that they wanted affordable housing because, you know, 2009 was a very different time than... 2020 when it comes to housing and nobody said they liked housing like there weren't like yimbies weren't a thing and like housing advocates were just a handful of people and usually like really scary attorneys and so <laughs> for a city to say that they wanted affordable housing I was like oh okay you know and so like I went and I had a meeting and and it really seemed to kind of fit my 
vibe at the time. Um, I was trying to do small projects. I just started my development company and, and I, you know, know the reality of what it means to borrow money. And I know that I'm by no means a wealthy person, certainly wasn't then, and knew that if I kept real estate transactions at a certain size, it would be more likely that I could do them, right? Yeah. It's like yeah. one thing to borrow $10 million, it's a different thing to borrow $100 million. So, mm-hmm. um, So to me, it felt really comfortable. You know, they had a need for some housing. They hadn't like gone, like in the first meeting when I went and I got interested, they hadn't gone into like a whole thing of like, oh, here's our whole history of being sued and having this lawsuit. And that came about like at some point later, but it just seemed like it was a really good fit for me. So I, one of the first things you had to do was to figure out how you're going to tap all the government dollars you needed to tap to actually build this thing. How complicated was that? And how many applications did you end up like submitting for various streams of public money? So the first thing I had to do was actually find a site. Like we didn't know that the parking lot that we ended up on was going to be where we were going to go until I had looked around and then that was thrown out as a potential option. And that site, believe it or not, actually ended up making the most sense financially. So then the way that you <laughs> the way you go about securing or identifying potential funding sources for affordable housing in California is you first look to see things like, what am I close to? How far away am I from a bus stop? How far away am I from a school? How far away am I from a grocery store or a library? You have to be in close proximity to amenities like that, to community amenities, in order to just um, have any chance at all in competing. If you're not next to them, just forget it. So, so, um, so what you're saying, just to, just to clarify here, you're saying that to, you have to be near the schools or be near transit or be near, be near grocery stores, parks, et cetera, those sorts of things. Because if you're not, your site is not, then you're not going to score well on any of the applications that would ultimately end up resulting in you getting money, right? Correct. Yeah. yeah. Okay. And yeah. That, that's obviously deliberate, right? They're they're trying to incentivize locating low income housing near those amenities, especially transit. Correct. Yeah. There's a reason behind it. Yeah. Um, good, good intentions behind it. Uh, just like there are good intentions behind the other thousands of things that we have to do. <laughs> um, <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah. So then, you know, just making sure that we're in those areas and then taking a look at like what is the policy du jour because it does change over time different pots of money become available over time based on whatever the most popular policy is like you can plan something at one point and if it takes a really long time maybe in a couple of years your projects won't be as desirable because now there's a new policy that everybody's really excited about you know one thing again i mean this is first proposed in 2009 we're now in 2020 when the project is on its deathbed as as we've discussed Mm -hmm. but Mm -hmm. one thing that was interesting to me is this was always going to be this was always an expensive project i mean 400,000 a unit in 2009 was not cheap Right. Um, no, that was uh, a lot then. That was that was a lot. Then, that yeah. was a lot then. But in order to be able to do it, and, you know, you're doing it was going to be, you know, 18 apartments and with this big parking garage. But what was interesting mm-hmm. to me is to watch like all of the ways that this sort of structured and these potential revenue sources got turned off. So when you initially mm-hmm. talked about the project, you were talking about that parking lot being paid, a paid parking lot, right? right? So even if you're, it's expensive to build it at least there would have been a revenue source that would have helped you ultimately finance it. The same as, you know, a plan for a retail space in there that was larger than ultimately what it ended up being proposed as being, right? Roughly double Mm -hmm. the size. That rent would have allowed you, again, even though that was expensive, would have allowed you to pay for it in a way that ultimately you weren't able to do. And so the pushback was not just about things that increased the overall cost of the project and the time and those sorts of things, but also the pushback or some of the, the conditions on approval ended up turning off sources of funding as well. Yes, that's and very so well that, said. Thank and you. So that, <laughs> so, but that, but that, I guess that just sounds like it makes it you know, all the more harder that when you have a project that's already so difficult to try to figure out how to do it, right? Yeah. Yeah. People have some, some ideas that like building affordable housing has like some basis in reality. Okay, it doesn't. Like, anytime I speak to people about this, I go, okay, take everything that you know about real estate, anything you've ever learned, anything you really know, 
and now throw it out the window because this has nothing to do with anything like that. This is based on emotions. It's based on politics. The only thing about it that's real estate is the fact that it's like it's physically real estate, but it's nothing about this as a real estate transaction. We spent a lot of time talking about the pushback from neighbors and city yeah. council and ultimately a, a lawsuit that took close to three years to resolve. So what was it like, mm-hmm. you know, working in that community? It's very normal. What happened in Solana Beach, the story of the $1.1 million kind of makes it like the most sensational, but the story itself is like, it's been around. Like this, <laughs> any developer who hears this, podcast has had their own version of this project and like mm-hmm, mm-hmm. like you know all of the things that go with it so everybody knows the neighbors are going to come unglued so everybody figures out how we shape this thing to make it the most palatable and how can everybody not get yelled at the most and how can we not disrupt people in their city council seats and how can we not have this give a city manager a heart attack and you know it's being funny but I'm not it's yeah and yeah. so, you know, how did it feel? It unfortunately felt very normal. Mm-hmm. I mean, this, the whole thing with all these yindis and everything, I'm like blown away. I, it's amazing to me that people are like so hardcore coming out in favor of like housing and density and zoning. I feel like I'm in a twilight zone sometimes. <laughs> so <But anyway. laughs> when did you know you made a mistake? Oh, God, I don't know what year it was, but I I did have a very candid conversation at one point with a representative from the city. And I was like, you know, you guys have no intention of, <laughs> of approving this thing. Like, I don't, I don't have time for this. You know, <laughs> I have already spent so many years working on this. I'm like, I just, like, I can't do this anymore. So it was, that was some point before 2014 when it actually got approved. Yeah, and I didn't. I didn't even think it would get approved. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I really did not think it would get approved. I was probably as shocked as everybody else the night it got approved. I think it would be helpful for our listeners who maybe you know didn't have the two and a half weeks to devote to reading Liam's story. <laughs> if you could not that break, long. <laughs> break break down that one point one million figure for us. What are the main cost drivers that total to 1.1 million per unit it's very simple it's a very small product and so the denominator the the number that you the 10 units that number that you divide into every cost is always going to produce a higher per unit cost Mm. than if this was a 100 unit project because you guys are working on affordable housing a lot but let's say part of what you did was affordable housing and part of what you did was like market rate housing now you wouldn't like tell your employer like well i'm gonna charge you 10% of what I normally charge you for my hourly wage because I'm covering an affordable housing story. Like my architect is not going to charge a fraction of the cost, right. you know, because it's still paying employees like the same amount of money to design an affordable housing building as he would a uh, luxury market rate housing. You know, all the code is the same, right? You're going to do all the same work. And so when they're dividing that by the number 10, that number is going to be much larger. So I have all the same types of costs that every other apartment complex would. It's just divided by 10. Yeah. Is it fair to say a corollary of that is because it's low-income housing specifically, there is a, a pressure to not have a ton of units to not build a high rise. I think right in the story, Liam, didn't you have a city council member kind of reference the specter of public housing in Chicago as one of the reasons they wanted the Pearl to look like they wanted it to look? Right. It was, I mean, they, I asked, well, why would you allow just 10? Why not 20? Why not 30? Yeah. And he said, you know, we can't go higher than three stories. That would be crazy for the neighborhood. Then you start, because the project's that big, you start thinking of quote unquote projects like Cabrini Green, right? In Chicago. And so, you know, I think that's the pushback you're getting for why you can't go bigger. Those sorts of arguments that evoke sort of this history of notorious public housing. Yeah. Uh, it's just such an unfortunate comment. Yeah. I'm like originally from the suburbs of Chicago. I know what Cabrini Green looks like. Right. And so like, yeah. 
So going four or five stories instead of three, it's not like all of a sudden there's a gigantic high rise in your town, right? Well, and and like if there was, so what? <laughs> right, exactly. Right. Like, I don't right. know why it's so scary, but, you know, I guess that's the generally accepted belief in California. So there's that kind of political limitation in terms of the number of units you can build, which kind of inherently raises that per unit cost to the insane amount that it ended up being. What else is driving that cost? The building does have a really large parking structure. I don't know where it is at this moment because the project's kind of baked in where it is now in time. But at the time, back when we were looking at different sites, this is why I was saying the very first thing that I did was look to see where we could build this in town. That actually made more sense than trying to find a piece of land in town that could accommodate 10 or more units because there's not a lot of available land. Land, like land costs are insane. <laughs> so on a beach. And why does building a parking structure cost so much and end up driving up the per unit cost? So first you have to dig a hole in the ground, which is a very expensive thing to do. Okay. It takes a lot of equipment and very specialized subcontractors. There aren't like there aren't just like a million subcontractors that can uh, dig a hole for you in the ground, you know, that would be the size of a parking structure. And then, you know, you've got a lot of concrete and steel that go in, into that. I mean, it's a big concrete structure that holds housing and holds cars. It's <laughs> a very expensive structure to build. To that point as well, the more space you have on your building yeah. footprint for a parking structure, the less space you have for housing units. Exactly. Well, the but over- again, building yeah. a parking structure, I just like want to re- I want to emphasize it. it looks crazy when you when you kind of look at it for the first time. But yeah. I mean, a ton of thought, like years of going through this and trying to figure out what would be the best option. I mean, there were other options that were even more expensive than this. This is the least expensive mm-hmm. way of going about bringing this project. Wow. Out. So, yeah. you know, land in a small coastal community in California is ridiculously expensive. So mm-hmm. taking a piece of land that was already owned by the city, building the parking in a structure was yeah. cheaper than trying to buy land. Now, did I think that we could <laughs> request no parking and get the project approved? No, like that wasn't like never at any time that I think that that was even a reality. Because the other thing we haven't mentioned here is that this project had to go through the Coastal Commission. Like I had to have a separate meeting mm. just for the Coastal Commission. The Coastal Commission is very protective of parking. Yeah. So I'm an outsider looking at this, right? And so yeah. it seemed to me, you know, based on our conversations and based on looking at the project that if you had, you know, the, despite it taking four years to get approval at the city council, you know, once that happened, it sounded like, and even with the giant parking garage, right? It seemed mm-hmm. like at that point in 2014, at a per unit cost of 600, 600 grand, seemed like you, yeah. you were closer and able to do that, would have been able to make it work. And then what happened is the lawsuit, and that cost you three years, and all of a sudden you ran into huge construction cost increases, and that was basically the end. Is that assessment basically right? That's spot on. I mean, there was like huge increases in construction costs. I mean, the economy was just on fire. And it seemed like there was construction in like every sector. Yeah. Office, medical, residential, multifamily residential, single family residential, everything. Yeah. So, I mean, resources, all of your materials, all of your labor going up and up. Nearly all of the 62% of the cost of project that went up from its approval to now was construction costs. You know, what do you think happened? Why so much? It just is. I mean, San Diego is a very hot market, and there's only so many subcontractors who are qualified to work on these job sites. And, you know, the types of subcontractors that are going to work on these job sites, uh, you know, have to be highly qualified and, and have a, be like very financially stable because they have to be able to bond to a certain extent. Mm-hmm. I'm curious if it takes this much time and money and frustration to build a affordable housing unit or even to try to build an affordable housing unit and then it doesn't materialize. Why aren't we just buying more pre-existing units instead of building things from scratch? Why aren't we just saying, you know what, let's just buy, you know, that motel that we can convert 
let's just buy an apartment complex that we can retrofit maybe a little bit. And it might be an easier route. I do think those things are being done, but I mean, do you know of apartment complexes that are sitting there like 50% or more vacant? Like people live in that housing. What do you do? Kick them out? (laughs) um, That's like, I don't know, solving one problem and creating another. I, I do think that we need to be rethinking the way that we've been doing this for a while. The way that we approach inclusionary housing. We know we have a scarcity of housing. And then like market rate housing goes through all the same things that affordable does. And then we also a lot of times will like extra tax it by saying that we have to do inclusionary on site. And I, before anybody like loses their mind, I'm not saying don't do inclusionary. But I'm saying like, maybe that's where our government dollars should go. <laughs> To help that occur, instead of extra taxing and making something even more expensive than it already is. To me, it's like if a a product makes sense in the market, right, and someone can pull all the money together in a market scenario, then maybe we could then add more affordable to it by giving it some more money. It just... Do you know what I'm saying? I, and I yeah. Yeah. I'm so glad I can't even imagine your listeners that are going to freak out. Just to be clear here, I, I think what you're saying is that it might be easier, let's say there's a 100-unit market rate apartment that's going to be approved, to find some way to make it easier on the developer to include below-market units in that development. Um, yeah. yeah. Yeah, and that, that might avoid some of the frustration that you encountered. And that seems endemic to the industry. And it's more cost efficient, I think. Let's just say, for conversation's sake, the land costs the same. You know, it costs you the same amount of money to go out into the street and tie into the sewer or water. Whether or not you've got one unit on that site or you've got a thousand, the cost to cut that hole in the ground and connect to that pipe is going to be the same. That's where Uh where this denominator comes in. And Uh so if all of those things worked out in a market setting, then maybe we could subsidize low-income units that go into that and yeah. not expect the luxury units to be further luxury <laughs> to support the low-income units. So given your experience, Ginger, do you think it's possible to build low-income housing in sort of small, expensive beach communities up and down the state? given the system that we have now? <laughs> I, I want to decline to state. I don't want, I don't want uh, people to say, no, see, see, she said we can't do it. So <laughs> then we don't have to do it. Building small developments in expensive communities does not make it any easier or less expensive to do. Smaller does not mean less expensive. Smaller means less expensive. So when you started the work on the Pearl, as you mentioned, that was a very different housing market than it was before COVID. Mm-hmm. It's people are saying that type of housing market, we could see something like we saw in the Great Recession in a post-COVID world or a concurrent COVID world. Because you were trying to develop during that period, are there any lessons that you learned then that you think might be applicable if we see the same type of downturn now that we did mm-hmm. 2009, 2010? You know, I don't know. I, you know, with my other developer friends, you know, we call each other and we're like, what are you seeing? What are you seeing? What do you, you know, what do you think is going on out there? That's kind of where I am right now. There's a softening in the market on the cost side is what I can tell you. You know, lessons, lessons learned, God. Well, let me drill in on that, actually. So the, if the cost yeah. side is softening, specifically, what cost do you expect to tumble? Labor. Interesting. And what about materials? I would think those would drop, too, right? Just generally less demands. Maybe, I don't maybe know. not. I don't know, because I don't know, I don't know how the supply chain works enough. I just know that right now, I don't think like the guy is, excuse me for any of the gals that work out there in the construction world, but I don't think the guys out there on site are making any more money, like a ton more money than they were before. I think some contractors can just name their price yeah. um, you know, mm-hmm. pre-COVID because the demand for their services are so high. I mean, there was a lot of companies that went under in the last time and the ones that remain are very strong. 
like no small thing to be the size of a subcontractor to be able to work on these job sites. God, if you think like development is tough, like I, I can't even imagine running <laughs> running a, a, a contracting firm that specializes in some aspects of the construction trade. So I think that their profit margin will be reduced. So it sounds like some of those hard costs you would expect to decline, but then at the same time, you might also expect some of the uh, financing mechanisms that the state and federal government and local governments provide, they might wane. Mm-hmm. So o- overall, it's well, not, only, not only that, you got potentially fewer planners in, city, mm-hmm. in cities, fewer building inspectors because of a huge hit to city local government tax revenues, right, which adds another sort of bureaucratic layer. But yes, I'm just, I wanted to add that right before Matt asked his question. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, yes. So is it going to be easier or harder to build low-income housing in this type of environment? Honestly, it, it just depends on where you are with your project when this all hits. Hmm. Um, a development deal, it has different like, stages of life, right? And so like, if you were trying to, say, close your construction loan to so commence construction, I don't know, right around March 30th, <laughs> you might be having a really, really hard time mm-hmm. um, getting that done because you've got lenders and investors who are like, well, we don't know what this is going to look like. And maybe we don't want to put up this capital right now because this is the time when it's the riskiest before you get started. Yeah. And maybe you go to pick up a deal in, let's say, November or December when maybe somebody's already had some money into it and now they can't pull it together and then an affordable developer goes in and goes, well, this is, you know, opportunity to get these other resources. Maybe I can make it happen. So it, it really depends. Like, it, And it's kind of the luck of the draw. You know, in the last session, I got really, really lucky that just none of my projects happened to fall at a particularly bad time. Like when redevelopment went away, yeah. um, mm-hmm. if you had a project that was in it, like kind of in a weird time of that, you were just screwed. I did want to ask one really rude question. What would have been your profit or your take home or however you want to define it if mm-hmm. the parole had actually happened? Like if everything was just perfect and everything just kind of like came together, no big deal, probably yeah. a million bucks. Delve into that a little bit for me. So the developer fee that we earned, so it does go into the cost of the unit. Um, there was a developer fee that's built in to pay for the work that I do up front. And so I get paid just like an architect or a general contractor. I get paid as the project gets done, assuming I get it done. No, right. <laughs> to actually do it to get it done. Gotcha. So basically one unit. That's another way of looking at it. <laughs> yes. Gotcha. Now, uh-huh. So okay, what's that, the, wait, that's what's the rude me. question, though? The rude no, question was like in... Well, no, that was, that was the rude question, which was, you know, what? how much money are you making off of this? Because that's... Wait, no, no, no. No, no, uh, no. Okay. Oh, no. Oh, no, you know. And I don't mean you. I mean anybody that's rude enough to ask that question. So do you want to ask me a follow-up to say, what does that pay for? Is it just, yes, go, do I just bring it what? home and put a big pile of money on my bed and roll around on it? And like, like, no! No! <laughs> so, what, so, so what is that pay for? <laughs> it pays for the people that work for me that actually, like, have to do this work every day. So, like, the person who's making the application for all these like insane funding sources. You have to be like a, a human calculator and robot to like figure out how to put all these things together so they all match up in everybody's application moves, you know, for all the different people that want all the different things. How do we say the same thing to all of them? It goes to the project manager who has to go through tons of meetings with the city, meetings with the community planning group, all the meetings with the designers. It goes to pay my salary so I can live in a house and put food on the table. It goes to the accountant who has to process all of the the bills that are coming in and deal with the loans that we're taking out. So the money that comes into developers, and I get it, like I get it that there's like a lot of like really wealthy developers. And so everybody just thinks like all this money just like entirely gets funneled to them. And to a certain extent, yeah, like it does. But there's a lot of other people who have, you know, good paying jobs and who take a lot of pride in the work that they do. 
So that's where that developer fee goes. It goes mostly to pay people. Not for developers such as yourself to roll around in. Not a bed of no. money. No, not, no, I bring about like a stack, like a stack of like a hundred ones and lay them around. That's what getting over here. Okay, that's it for me. Yeah, Ginger, uh, anything else that you want to add or, or want to make sure that our, or, I guess I said, our vast and influential audience is, is aware of about your experience with this project or just in general? I just want to thank everybody who is out there fighting the good fight. It is, it's incredible for me to see, for me to watch. I've been doing this for over 20 years and I get so excited about all of the Yimby groups and all of the the young people who are coming out and just being really active and changing policy and changing the world through the work that they're doing. So I just I want to give a shout out to all the Yimbys out there and I just I love you so much and thank you. All right. Well Ginger, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us. Thank you for listening to Gimme Shelter, the California Housing Crisis Podcast. I'm Matt Levin. You can find me on Twitter at MLevinReports. And uh, me, uh, Liam Dillon. I am on Twitter at Dylan Liam. Thanks again for listening. And we will be back in two weeks with uh, bushier hair and beards.